Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the NRA, but not the one you're probably familiar with. Uh, The subject of today's show is the National Restaurant Association, also a lobbying group that has significant sway in Congress and in state houses across the country, but focuses naturally on restaurants and the food industry, and specifically on keeping wages down for the people who work in that industry. The other NRA, as it has frequently been termed in um, articles we've read in preparation for this show, is really quite something. Like they, they're very busy people. Yes, uh, I would argue that based on the policies that they advocate for with restaurant workers, and in terms of their impact on food safety issues everywhere from agriculture to customer delivery, they might arguably be the more deadly NRA, and that is saying something in the U.S. of A. They are also, I think they've gotten away with very little scrutiny because, well, until recently, I have to imagine nine out of 10 people had no idea it existed. And then Herman Cain ran for president and the jig was up, so to speak, because we all learned that that group existed and he'd been the president of it. I can only presume that those speeches were legendary at at the (laughs) conventions. I I want to know how many Pokemon movie quotes there were during those. And then he, he sort of exposed the group to that scrutiny when he ran for president in 2012. uh, And then he died like a lot of restaurant workers did because of the national restaurant associations advocating for lack of food safety policies and trying to keep restaurants open during the deadliest months of the pandemic. Uh, And we are where we are now, which is a country where restaurant worker is one of like 12 jobs that you can still have uh, because people with money have to eat somewhere and they can't be bothered to cook themselves. And it's considered gauche in American society to have a personal chef unless you are extremely rich or a professional athlete. In which case, you also have them fake your COVID vaccination card and run general errands. But, you know, neither here nor there. That's going places, Noah. Well, uh, well so is this episode, so. <laughs> <laughs> so my favorite part about the Herman Cain thing and the fact that he was president of the this NRA for so many years is he was behind the delay on indoor smoking bans in restaurants. And also he wanted to... Uh, raise the legal alcohol limit uh, because he felt that having it as low as it is is an undue burden on restaurants. So advocate of uh, secondhand smoke and drunk driving are Herman McCain. Herman McCain. It's impossible. Listen, it helps a lot of people get to work on time. So it's impossible to say it's whether it's good or not. There it is. <laughs> Herman Cain, of course, had his job as president of the NRA because in his pre-political life he 
ran Godfather Pizza, which um, is <laughs> America's, I don't know, 10th favorite national pizza chain, maybe. It's I have never seen a commercial for Godfather's Pizza. I'm not sure they actually exist or like the mafia are just a figment of the imagination meant to scare little children. I do remember Godfather Pizza commercials when I was a kid and I think it was in like Anchorage when I lived there. So they I remember this place. Alaska's favorite pizza chain. Ben. There it is. <laughs> a lot of what we're going off of here today is um a Huffington Post article about the National Restaurant Association written back in 2014. And though this is now nine years old, a lot of the basic ideas remain true. Uh, the headline here is the National Restaurant Association spends big to keep wages low. And it talks about at the time, uh, an effort in the Senate to raise the minimum wage to $10 and 10 cents per hour, which failed to clear the 60 volt threshold needed to overcome a filibuster in large part because the NRA was there lobbying congressmen to keep minimum wage where it's at. Thanks and, NRA. Yeah. And That's minimum great. wage is still where it was in 2014, which is seven twenty five an hour. Except if you get tips, it's, quite a bit less than that yeah it's 213 an hour which that's a level where when we talk about like other countries we use a statistic like that to talk about the dire poverty that requires american corporations to go in and buy up all their water so again one of these things where it's we are incapable of conceptualizing the immiseration of the American people. Instead, what you get is, you know, 98% of poor people have a refrigerator or whatever it is. Uh, I know that in Washington, D.C. in particular, uh, and I, I have to get this one off, they actually had a referendum to stop having a sub-minimum wage, which I think is the best way to refer to that instead of the tip minimum wage. Screw that. Tips shouldn't be a thing. You shouldn't have to. Workers should not have to be rewarded for superior service because they don't owe you that. You're a customer, not a feudal lord. Screw you if you think otherwise. But yeah, the D.C. got rid of the sub-minimum wage, and then the D.C. Council repealed that referendum because a bunch of chefs, including famous charity case, Jose Andres, the, the chief of World Kitchen, who goes around doing positive PR a bunch of the time, uh, argued against it because he didn't feel like paying his workers more. This time, D.C. passed it again. The D.C. Council has indicated they will not repeal it, so I can't wait to see what else happens as a result of that, if there's a massive culinary exodus from the city to try and force it to heal. But it's good to know that the citizens of Washington smelled right through the manure. They they saw this for what it was. And they saw the open corruption, and they said, "No, nope, we're not about that." I actually do have an article from a Think Progress about the what you were just talking about the DC minimum wage. Uh, it was Initiative seventy seven, a ballot measure in twenty eighteen that uh, would have raised the tip minimum wage in the capital to fifteen dollars an hour by twenty twenty six. And that initiative passed by an 11-point margin in June of 2018 before a couple months later, D.C. City Council gutted it. And Think Progress uh, did the work in this article of looking into 
exactly how much money the restaurant industry gave to city council members and the mayor. Uh, they tally up something like $250,000 in campaign donations. It didn't mention the NRA specifically, but I mean, effectively, this is at the local level what the NRA does at the national level. Wasn't wasn't Initiative 77 that thing where they killed all the Jedi? I think that's 66. Eh, wrong multiple of 11, whatever. Please do not rely on me for Star Wars knowledge. Uh, that's not my expertise on this show. Hang on on this show. We can't do this right now. <laughs> we <cannot. laughs> All right. Focus. The NRA. They're bad. I mean, we can end the episode right there if you want. That's. <laughs> but no. Okay. In all seriousness, the NRA, the other kind of like really high level scumbag thing that they do I mean, there's a lot to pick from, but one of the other ones is that one of the reasons you didn't know much about it until Herman Cain was out there stealing tax plans from SimCity and whatever, was that they use a bunch of AstroTurf groups, shell companies, and different kind of um, movers and shakers in various states and countries in one particular case to get signatures on petitions that they support, to donate money to politicians that they support. So they're always playing this game where they're just kind of switching around on everything. And it's been very hard to get a hold of who they are and what they do until very recently, because now for the first time in basically American labor history, you have a movement to unionize the the restaurant sector. And as a result when you have workers beginning to gain power, the enemy kind of coalesces and the NRA is very much the enemy in this case. They have gotten caught supporting again, uh, sub minimum wage uh, campaigns to keep the sub minimum wage in place. They've gotten caught supporting anti-union campaigns, union busting and similar kind of efforts to basically keep restaurant workers poor, untrained, unskilled, quote-unquote, very much a uh, 72-point uh, air quotes there, and generally in the worst possible state. But Noah, yes, the NRA does all of that, but you know what they also do? They also lobby on behalf of mom-and-pop restaurants so that they could stay open during the pandemic. So really, who's to say if they're good or bad or not? I mean, it sounds like they're just fighting for the little mom-and-pop. But but in that case, they were terrible at their job because if you live in any city, literally anywhere in the United States, you know that mom and pop restaurants closed left and right during the pandemic. And meanwhile, chains all survived and are expanding and hiring. So if the NRA was standing up for mom and pop stores, they failed. And in fact, there was sort of a rift between those mom and pop restaurants and their chain competitors who ostensibly are all under the umbrella of the NRA, but the NRA can't serve them all when their interests are opposed. There's an article in Restaurant Business Online, which is an outlet that I don't think we'll be uh, frequenting here on Punching Out, but uh, it does help us here on today's episode, uh, which talks about how during the pandemic, the NRA would not, in fact, give aid to 
the small restaurants of America if it was not coupled with aid for places like McDonald's and Olive Garden, you know, the people whose dues keep the NRA afloat because, you know, they have much more money to back the NRA with. Hold, hold up, because only 3% of the NRA's money comes from dues. We're going to get to that later. That's <laughs> yes. by their own admission. I'm not making that up. They said that themselves. But also, what? just to be clear about what Ryan is saying, the NRA is the majority owner of this publication. But they were, and I quote, not asked to preview or shape the story in any way. I'm sure they weren't asked. I'm sure you didn't need to ask them. I'm just saying. But yes, the the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, is basically trying to fight the good fight, I guess, or the, the less bad fight in favor of smaller restaurants. Of course, part of the problem there is they're kind of fatally wounded by the fact that a bunch of those restaurants belong to like local or state NRA affiliates. So kind of playing both sides here. But yeah, throughout the pandemic, every aid program that went to small restaurants also went to big ones. Uh, what was it? I think the two I definitely saw shouted out other than like McDonald's, Olive Garden, and so on. Uh, there was Potbelly and there was one other one that were able to get relief, basically bailed out through one of these programs. And we know that a bunch of these did fraudulent paycheck protection pledge loans, uh, thereby making sure that a bunch of other applicants couldn't get money and honestly making us all regular people who work for a living wonder, why didn't we do some check fraud? It's a question for the ages. Yeah. Just to read a bit from this article, the association took more of a scattergun approach. Uh, they're talking about how they were you know, trying to get aid well, from Congress. Pushing for aid in any form. That included supporting creation of the Paycheck Protection Program, an initiative that channeled low interest and potentially forgivable loans to any operation with more than one location and fewer than 500 people on its payroll. Reports emerged of larger operations like Ruth's Chris and Potbelly qualifying for loans. And the NRA tries to say that, you know, we're just helping out restaurants here where, you know, if some people slip through the cracks, is that really our fault, you know? Uh, we're looking out for the little guys. Who will think of the mom and pop McDonald's? I mean, seriously. That is that is actually a, an interesting example because for a long time, McDonald's specifically made a lot of hay out of the fact that they were a franchise model. And therefore, a mom and pop McDonald's was a thing. But now, uh, I actually saw this the other day, not in research for this episode, but it used to be fairly common that you could start a career as just regular Joe number whatever at a McDonald's and possibly end up inheriting the franchise at some point along the road. Now, like with everything else, that is no longer the case because we have an aristocracy, just not a name, and they get to kind of like put together their holdings and accumulate, you know, greater and greater wealth and so on. But for a long time, that was what McDonald's used to say. No, actually, we can't pay our workers fair wages because these are just little mom and pop stores. They just happen to all have the same branding and serve the same stuff. Except, you know, where prices and participation may vary and, and that kind of thing. But a lot of these restaurants use that successfully and they're discarding it now because they no longer feel the need 
or no longer see a use in that because now they can just openly rubber noses in how much they're cheating the system. Yeah. The article talks about how, uh, in contrast to the NRA, there's also the IRC, which is the Independent Restaurant Committee or Commission or Coalition, sorry, uh, which wanted for more targeted aid to smaller restaurants and the NRA and IRC were at odds. One line in this article sticks out to me as being, um, well, you said this outlet is owned by the NRA. And I, I think this language really gets to that quote. Instead of hearing one clear ask from an industry representing more than 12 million voters, which is an interesting way to phrase workers an industry representing more than 12 million voters is how they describe the restaurant industry presumably including those workers as being represented by their restaurants by the industry don't give them ideas i'm sure these people would (laughs) love to have congressional seats apportioned by how many chain restaurants are in the area shareholder mindset right there yeah. Uh, so, so I guess what I have learned here, and this is amazing, is that the uh, comparison of this NRA to the other NRA is that th- these guys are just as bad in many ways. They are scummy. They lie. They are actively trying to make sure that the average person uh, is poorer and more miserable, and uh, they have interests only in looking out in their for their wealthy industry folk. Did I get that right? Is that, is that what we learned here? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. I'm trying to phrase this in a way that isn't to be fair to the NRA, because that's not what I want to do. But I imagine that a lot of these similar industry associations are likewise representative really of the power players within each industry rather than the mom and pop stores that may make it up. You know, if you're talking about whatever the retail industry's lobbying arm, they're going to, Walmart is going to have a bigger say in that than your corner store for reasons that are obvious and, but nevertheless, not good. Yeah. And the NRA is at pains to try and shed this image for one, the, so the, the guy who was in charge in 2022 was the CEO of Golden Corral. He pointed out that his four predecessors had all managed independent restaurants, which I refuse to believe is true in the strict sense of the word. But you can't find who those people were. So, you know, good luck with that because they elect a new one every year. And then the new one is uh, used to be the head of the Wine and Spirits Wholesalers of America, uh, which is the the other WSWS, I guess. <laughs> that is not a reference anybody's gonna get i don't get it for example <laughs> we'll tell you off air okay anyway <laughs> the point is this is a person who is obviously not concerned with the needs of small restaurants that might be part of their community that might be really enmeshed culturally in a town or an area this is a person who cares about bottom lines. It, we talked about this in the airline episode recently. These people are interchangeable because they think that leadership is the same, regardless of whether you're running a restaurant or an oil business or an airline or a hedge fund. 
and they've been allowed to feel that way because we've financialized everything. So as a result, restaurants, like everything else, are just stock symbols. It just it doesn't matter now. And another thing that I thought was pretty dispositive in that restaurant business article is how at pains they were to point to the IRC and blame them as the reason that things didn't get done quite the way the IRC wanted. And to specifically say that the problem was that they were um, being too combative with Congress people, which if you're a congressional staffer reading this, first of all, congratulations, you have time to read anything. And second of all, you're looking at this and you're going, I don't think my boss is going to want to do business with these people. Because, I mean, if Tom Colicchio shows up to the office, you might be willing to listen. That's a celebrity chef. That's a top chef judge. That's somebody well known in this country. But if the image you have in your head of the Independent Restaurant Coalition is, oh, those people, you can't work with them. They crawl up your butt about everything. They don't leave you alone. They don't know what they're saying. Then you're less likely to listen to them. And as a result, the NRA, much like the chain restaurants that it largely represents, get to have the dominant voice in the room, which is awesome. That's exactly what everybody wants. I I think having given listeners this appetizer of a first segment, we can move on after a brief break into our main course. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Have you had a minute to decide on your order? And Lou. Hey, guys. We spent the first segment today talking about the other NRA, the National Restaurant Association, and its role in lobbying Congresses and uh, state legislatures for laws that are more favorable to the people who own restaurants and less favorable to the people who work at restaurants. You know, you can sort of figure out what they do just from that brief summation, but... um, A detail of the other NRA that caught the eye of news outlets in recent weeks has been the fact that a lot of the money with which they lobby Congress is taken directly from the workers themselves. There was an investigation in the New York Times originally that was then followed up in outlets like the Washington Post about ServeSafe, which is um, effectively a course that people working in restaurants and kitchens are required to take in order to prove that you know they can handle food safely they can do what's required of them in a restaurant and they pay a small i think it's like a 15 dollar fee for taking that course um i i don't know how many hours it is but you know having worked in a kitchen i had to take it is you know it was a brief thing but at any rate that money goes straight to the NRA, who owns and operates ServeSafe. And that's sort of the conflict that uh, has generated some raised eyebrows of late. Yeah, I can imagine why people would be a little upset about that. You're required to pay uh, a fee to take a course that is required by your job, 
And then they turn around and use that money to say why you are a lazy bum and shouldn't be paid a minimum wage that is anywhere near livable. Yeah, I can see why people would be upset about that. And uh, that's perhaps bad and also probably illegal in a lot of ways. So that's cool. Not not to nitpick, but in many cases, it's not only required by your job, it's required by the state. Yes. So there are a lot of places where Serve Safe is just baked into a restaurant industry from the get. It's not the case in New York City because, of course, they have bodegas and subways and things that the rest of us just don't get to enjoy. So they also have an independent course that you have to take and is... From my understanding, that one is you take it once, you're set. It's a lifetime certification. You know, the thing that uh, we're, we're apparently not okay with doing for teachers, but we're okay for doing for food safety. But meanwhile, the serve safe course you have to take every three years. And again, every time that is 15 bucks going in. And not all of those workers are being reimbursed by their restaurants for it. Some are, apparently, according to Yahoo slash Waypo article, but not all of them are. And then on top of that, this is what allows the NRA to say, well, actually, only 3% of our budget comes from dues because the other 97% is apparently being stolen from workers. In the first segment, we talked about the 12 million voters represented by the restaurant industry. You know, 12 million times $15 gets you a lot of money real quick. Uh, even if they're only going through the course once, you know, it, the restaurant industry is famous for its high turnover. You know, people, you know, work in a kitchen for six months, have given $15 to the NRA in all likelihood. I'm going to quote a bit from this Washington Post article, which was republished in Yahoo. It talks about to Piaget Ventus is the name of this worker who, uh, Quote, had been working in the New York restaurant industry for several years when her manager informed the staff one day, circa 2015, that they all needed to take a serve safe course. Continuing, I wasn't too upset about doing the course at the time, Ventus told the Washington Post, but now knowing that it was done more so under the guise to keep minimum wage down, using our time and money, it kind of feels like I've been duped. Ventus is one of two plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit filed this month in a U.S. district court in the Southern District of New York against the NRA and its Serve Safe program. In the complaint, Ventus and Sean Gallagher claimed that the National Restaurant Association offered a training program with, quote, little to no value, only to raise cash to funnel into the group's lobbying efforts. Plaintiffs are, in effect, being forced to fund lobbying efforts against their own interests unknowingly and in violation of generally accepted business practices and other laws. There's So I've never really worked food service. Like I worked in a coffee shop in, in college and everything. But there are so many levels of the food service industry that are, is truly abhorrent. Uh, tipped minimum wage being $2, which means that if you work a 12-hour shift, which is a very long shift, uh, your employer really is only paying $28 with payroll taxes for your service for that day, making them hundreds of dollars on that $30, less than $30. That's ridiculous. The fact that the serve safe, which is required by your employer, and don't get me wrong, I think everybody should know proper food safety if they're handling food in any way, but that is something that employers aren't paying for. And then take that money and lobby it to that. Uh, the fact that 
food and, and cashiers and, and waitresses and, and any kind of server have to carry their own bank on them of their own money to pay the employer at the end of the day, whatever they cashed out. This is infuriating. I not not to be too tangential here, but I do want to say you can see why they focused on uh, Ventus as the plaintiff because Sean Gallagher is a much less Star Wars ass name. <laughs> yeah, that that's certainly attention grabbing. The fact that that's the first two words, you were immediately like, "I'm going to read the rest of this," but and also you know really doubly checking before reading it aloud on the radio. Yes. There you go. But the most, I think, <laughs> the fact that not only is this not enough to get the NRA the metaphorical, verbal, legal, juridical equivalent of bulldozed, and not only that, but that it is also integrated into state food certification practices, that they've gotten state governments to basically say actually we are not only we are going to not only legalize but require that food workers in our state give money to the almost said agency and that is a wrong word to the lobbying arm to this bunch of scumbags that does nothing but keep their wages down if you needed proof that this country is a joke there's more proof. I don't know why you need proof at this point, but there it is. Also, while I'm at it, I would also like to point out, you mentioned the 12 million voters thing again, and it got me thinking. You would expect in that rhetorical role, you would expect taxpayers normally, but you can't say that because a ton of the people working in restaurants can't pay taxes because they don't make enough money because of the NRA. That's right. Wage theft all the way down, I guess. Yeah, there are layers to this. Like a cake, if you will. I'm going to continue from the article before getting bogged down on food metaphors. <laughs> give some examples of just the level to which serve safe is prevalent here. Um, a handful of states, including California and Texas, require workers who handle food to take a safety course. And worker advocates say serve safe dominates this market, even if there are other options. Many workers think ServeSafe is a government program, says Saru Jayaraman, president of One Fair Wage, a group that lobbies against the sub-minimum wage for restaurant employees. New York City, where Ventus used to work before moving to Los Angeles, has its own rules. The law requires that food service establishments have at least one supervisor trained in food safety, and that course is available only through the city's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. The online course is free, but to re receive a certificate, managers must pass a final test that costs $24. Their certificate never expires. But some employee, some employers, like Ventus's former one in New York, regularly ask workers to take serve safe food handler training, even if it's not required by law, worker advocates say. Continuing, the NRA doesn't make serve safe financial information public, aside from a brief mention in the group's form. 990, which it files annually with the IRS. In its filing from 2021, the NRA said it tested nearly 667,000 food service managers in serve safe programs, but made no mention of the number of hourly workers, such as Ventus and Gallagher, who took the basic food safety course. Great. 
So this is the kind of public-private partnership that we have come to rely on in this country, where you have a private entity that is masquerading as a public one uh, that has no accountability whatsoever to anybody other than their own shareholders. Or sorry, they're they're a lobbying firm. I don't think they have shareholders. They have ghouls. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. I, in particular, I am struck by, and, and look, I get not trusting government agencies. I come from a place where political corruption for a very long time was extremely out in the open, very obvious, constant. But the ability of Americans to like allow the private sector to pull this kind of scumbag maneuver, because that really is the only term, is it for things that, you know, that one, uh, I was thinking the other day of the Shirley Sherrod scandal during the Obama years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. sec- a, a, an undersecretary of agriculture makes one kind of, uh, a comment that some people consider iffy, and she has to be fired and put out of a job and the whole thing. But the NRA can literally steal money from waiters that it then uses to keep their wages down. No one gives a damn. Not really, because if they did, then, I mean, frankly, I, I don't mean to add, I you would expect uh, NRA CEOs and people like that to be burned in effigy, which is what we do when we're angry about people in this country, when we feel that they've stolen something from us. At least that's what I found out in the, I don't know, late parts of 2020 and early parts of 2021. There's a lot of talk about that. For some reason, that doesn't seem to be happening. And I can't imagine why it is that lobbyists for some of the most powerful businesses in America somehow don't rate that treatment. Hmm. Yeah. Well, part of the answer is, and this is something you alluded to in the first segment, is the NRA does a good job of keeping its name out of things. Quoting from the Washington Post article again, advocacy groups such as the Restaurant Opportunity Center United and One Fair Wage say Serve Safe Money has been funneled, at least in part, to worker organizations that lobby against the hot-button issues such as voter initiatives to eliminate the tip credit. The credit allows restaurants to pay servers, bartenders, and other tip employees as little as two thirteen dollars an hour as long as their wages and tips combine to equal the minimum wage in their jurisdiction. The NRA and state restaurant associations have long argued that ending the tip credit would have a chilling effect on the industry, cutting into earnings, raising prices for diners, and reducing the take-home pay of workers who rely on tips. Over the past five years or so, groups such as the Restaurant Workers of America, the Save Our Tips Coalition, and Restaurant Industry United have picked up on this messaging and taken it to the streets and storefronts in Michigan, Portland, Maine, and the nation's capital, where they have told voters that hourly workers want to maintain the tip credit. Media outlets, including the Post, have given over column inches and taken quotes from workers to connect it to what critics call astroturf groups or fake grassroots organizations that appear to represent the interests of restaurant owners and industry. Effectively, the NRA is behind groups like this. They are rather than, you know, have their face on the push to keep waiters wages down. They try to put a fake waiters face on that push. 
And it it better be a fake waiter's face because if you work in food service and you're going to be a narc like that, you're going to hell. Yeah. Give me a second. The NRA told the Post that the association is not involved in large coordinated astroturf activities, though its Form 990 filing suggests something different. All of this is like in the weeds and behind closed doors and it's designed to sound complicated and conspiratorial so that you sound like a kook if you bring it up, basically. And yet, it's true. I honestly feel bad for anybody who is not, or who bought anything of like, oh yeah, tipped workers love this stuff. This is the greatest way to live is to precariously have to kiss somebody's behind for hours on end in order to make rent this month. People love working like that, and it's a really great environment for them to feel better about themselves and uh, live the American dream. So I don't know what this is. I think this NRA thing's great. Well, you want to talk about some people who figured out that they were fooled by that rhetoric or, or things very much like it. If you do try to change things through the one avenue that we're ever allowed to change anything in this country, so we're told anyway, which is at the ballot box. California had this this law that they pushed through. Newsom did sign it into law, which is new for him. And it would create a council that would control fast food hours, wages, et cetera, et cetera. And the long and short of it is that, of course, it is going to be subject to a referendum to repeal it. And shall we say that the method through which the NRA and its front groups, got to include them, attracted the signatures necessary. Maybe some of those methods weren't entirely savory, perhaps? Yes. Some of this stuff is... um, Well, there's an LA Times article about the push to for this ballot referendum, which is delaying the implementation of the Fast Food Council to at least 2024, when voters will be uh, voting upon it statewide. Quoting here, petition circulators for the ballot measure to overturn AB257 lied to them about what they were signing. Others said that the signature gatherers made vague and misleading claims. A Hollywood canvasser, for instance, presented the petition as an inflation cure or tried to hide legally required paperwork explaining the proposed referendum, sometimes becoming abusive when questioned. Yeah, one of them mentioned and got caught on video calling a person who started like explaining what the measure, what repealing the measure would actually result in and what AB257 was in the first place, got caught calling the person who was essentially relating the actual facts of the situation, a homophobic slur, and I quote, dozens of times. Which you have to imagine, that makes your effort look really good. There was also a mention that somebody... I knew I knew this was going to be great. One of the people interviewed in this article is named Ilich Kovarubias, and the moment I saw that article, that name, I knew this was going to be incredible because <laughs> this is the quote: Ilich Kovarubias, twenty-three, heard a circulator on campus parroting the pitch that signing the petition would help to raise wages for fast food workers. Except the campus was in Mexico, in Tijuana. They were faking. California addresses for people signing. So all of these people who have complained for years about stolen elections and whatnot, there, 
go yell at these people if you care so much about democracy, because this is where it's happening. This is where the crisis actors are. This is where the paid protesters are. Literally, they are paid. That is not a requirement that, that is not allowed in every state, but it is in California. Go yell at them. When Alex Jones does an episode on these people, that I know he's got his own stuff that he's got to deal with right now, and may it continue forever for the rest of his short and miserable life. But when he does an episode on these people, then I'll think he actually gives a damn about voting. When any of these morons that have spent the last three years trying to turn any election their party didn't win into illegitimate just by default, when any of them give a single damn about this, then maybe they'll be believable. But as of right now, all we're proving here is that if you are in the private sector, then there are millions and millions of Americans who will let you do whatever you want because they are idiots. Because they know better than this. I'm convinced they know better than this. They've just decided not to. We've talked in the past about how the costs of union busting often exceed what unions and workers are even asking for and from their companies. And this article notes that um, the workers who are, you know, having people sign petitions, you know, go, canvassing, going out there, knocking doors, getting people to sign their petition for the overturn of this bill are averaging $16.18 a name for the signatures they get on proposition measures like this, which... You know, I don't know how many they're doing an hour, but there's a very good chance that these canvassers are being paid significantly more than the restaurant workers whose wages are at stake, which is a cruel irony. And we're going to end this segment on that note only because the dessert we have prepared for you is so, so sweet. When we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about the restaurant industry's union busters and who they are and what they do. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Can I interest anyone in some dessert? And Leo. Hey, guys. Um, We've been talking about the NRA, the National Restaurant Association, um, which is a lobbying group that exists to uh, keep the least paid workers in America underpaid. And they also in addition to their lobbying efforts, have what is called the Restaurant Law Center, which is just an incredible name if you spend more than two seconds thinking about it because like, it imagines a whole world of restaurant law. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is a Charlie like, Day. Like maritime law. Or bird law, which is what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Either works. Um, and... The Restaurant Law Center had a annual summit last October, at which to which they invited the head of the NORB, the <laughs> National Board of Elections Board, um, 
And currently the head of the NLRB is Jennifer Abruzzo, a figure we've talked about here on Punching Out. Someone we've talked about favorably on Punching Out because she tends to have, you know, her head in the right spot. You know, she she's on our side of things as far as worker rights go. Um, What did she do to him, Ryan? Well, the article that we're going to read from is in Lever News, and it starts with the reaction to her appearance. Uh, Has Chapel Phillips, an executive at the buffet restaurant Golden Corral, asking attendees to please do not leave the conference. I believe the technical term for what she did is she stunted on them. <laughs> the article goes in here about, um, quote, Abruzzo's candid reminders that the NLRB is a pro-worker agency formed in part to level the playing field between employers and workers contrasted sharply with the presentations by other speakers at the Restaurant Legal Summit, the sixth annual conference held by the legal arm of the NRA. This year, executives linked to Aramark, Red Lobster, McDonald's, Mm. Auntie Anne's, Cinnabon, Arby's, and Dunkin' Donuts had gathered with management-side employment lawyers to plot ways to beat back a growing threat of restive workforce demanding higher pay, better working conditions, and increasingly union representation. So so what you're telling me is like if that one building that they were in had been sent to the Shadow Realm – we could have massively improved after Jennifer Abruzzo left. Well, we could have who's massively the improved. Survivor of the Restaurant Legal Center Summit, you know. Well, was that's it the, the Burger thing- King CEO? <laughs> <laughs> that that's the other thing I was going to bring up. It's called the Restaurant Legal Summit, according to what you said, which implies that there's an. Like it implies that there's an illegal summit somewhere That's right. where they actually talk about all the things they're going to do. That's right. I like it. So so my favorite part about this article is that the NRA paid for her to be there, paid to bring her out so that she could roast them. And then they got huffy and they were like, this sucks. <laughs> And my favorite part of that is that the guy who invited her got huffy that people were calling his move a mistake. He was like, we went through a whole process. We reimbursed our travel costs, everything. Nobody called it a mistake then. And he said, and I hope to see her at many future events. Until she started speaking, that is. Yeah. (laughs) So so either this guy is a mole somehow in, in the NRA or like... I don't even know what the other possibility is because it, or I guess it could spell that the NRA doesn't feel that they have anything to fear from inviting Jenna Bruzzo to their events, but you know, that's right. And I think, no, I I genuinely think that's exactly what the mindset was, is they were like, they're so used to every single agency and government bending over backwards to help out private entities and and make sure that big business has anything they could ever ask for at the expense of all of the rest of us that they it never even occurred to them that the most pro-worker and nlrb president that we've had in ages would go there and say anything other than you guys are great we love you so much we were, were so happy to work with you and not you guys need to stop union busting or we will come down on you like a bag of bricks like it never even occurred to them that that could happen. And you know what? 
serves them right. And I'm so glad it happened. I hope it happens again and again and again. Just to give a sense of what the Restaurant Law Center specifically does, um, <sighs> quoting from the article, the Restaurant Law Center is currently suing the Biden administration over a re- rule regarding how much tip workers get paid for non-tip tasks, and the city of New York over a law ending at-will employment in the city's fast food restaurants, instead requiring that fast food workers may only be fired for, quote, just cause. Oh, so they're uh, wonderful people. Yeah. For wage laws already on the book, the Restaurant Law Center Conference was a chance for restaurant managers to figure out how to comply with them or at least fight lawsuits which alleged they had broken such laws. The, the, the presentation that they talk about with that, they, they mentioned that the speaker is Steve Miller, which is an appropriate name because he's a hell of a joker. And he opens the presentation <laughs> with... <laughs> Anyway, so he opens the presentation with, I started out working in the restaurant industry when I was 15 years old, maybe at 3.35 an hour. Now, the article from uh, Lever here figures out that when he was about 15, that would have been 1985. Number one, 3.35 is more than, in, in 1985, 3.35 is more than $9 an hour today, so that's higher than the minimum wage. But you know what else 3.35 is more than, than you don't even need to adjust for inflation for, is the sub-minimum wage of 2.13. So, Got go away, please. Go talk at midnight or whatever the hell it is you do with the rest of your time. So, that that guy is is one of these huge issues here. He's like, he was doing all this stuff that he's not supposed to do, like walking around with big knives and shoving raw sausage into a meat grinder. Yeah, there are reasons you're not supposed to do that as a teenager. And guess who's trying to make sure that teenagers are allowed to do those things again? Uh, take a wall guess. Just just think about that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Related, oh, Iowa and some other state, I can't remember, um, has stuff making a way through their state legislations that will make it legal for 14, 15 year olds to work in fast food. Like, dude, read the room. Yeah. Otherwise known as somebody, somebody laid out a very persuasive case that that is basically the undocumented kids will never go to school bill, which, yep, seems, seems like a a pretty nice way to um, sort of continue that particular oppression. Before he uh, took the money and ran, Steve Miller also talked about, uh, you know, why is this stuff happening so much these days? Uh, quote, why is wage and hour litigation popular? Asked Miller, referring to class action lawsuits by workers denied wages. Well, the work is easy, right? It's worth millions and millions of dollars, and it's easy to find these claims. Plaintiff's attorneys jump on this. You no, know, no. Painting them as like next- ambulance chasers. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to need you to read the next paragraph. As he spoke, M- Miller displayed a slide with a meme of Dr. Evil from Austin Powers featuring the text $100 billion as an apparent <laughs> caricature of a plaintiff's lawyer. <laughs> uh, yeah, caricature. Dead accurate portrayal, more like. Oh, it's so good. So they know. Uh, they know. They know they're being jerks. Like, they know they deserve every bad thing that comes to them. They don't care. Yep. I, I'm also a huge fan of the union. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Not union busting, not union avoidance. The positive employee relations types. 
that uh, talked about ways to prevent your employees from unionizing, which I, I think is called avoiding a union. But, you know, I'm, I'm just simple old country teacher who, you know, knows what words mean. Well, let's uh, see what the union avoidance types have to say. Um, Again, quoting from the article, quote, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, every newspaper reports on every union win when an unfair labor practice charge is filed when there are challenges to elections, said Felice Eckelman, principal at Jackson Lewis, one of the oldest and most infamous union avoidance law firms in the country. When did this become front page news? And guess who's reading it? replied Laura Pearson Scheinberg, one of Eckelman's Jackson Lewis colleagues, as the two sat across from each other on the main stage of the summit. My kids, literally, I have an 18-year-old. My kids are into it. And later decides to then talk. So Pearson Scheinberg in particular gets a lot of choice quotes throughout this. Really just what you might call um, real top shelf quotes on this one. (laughs) Uh, Mentions things like, Before, I used to say unionization isn't the problem for you in the restaurant industry. But now, she warned, kids do not care about paying union dues. 2% of pay. Are you kidding me? Their Netflix costs more. They think it's a hell of a deal. And then later, also mentions the playbook, the organizing training that you may have been having over the years. There's still relevant pieces to it, Pearson Scheinberg explained. But the most important thing I don't want you to do is go negative. You have this trophy generation that wants everything light and fluffy. You need to change the mindset to the fact that you are lucky to have them come to work. You are so lucky. Side note, that is unironically true. Thank you for coming to work today. That's the way they want to feel. That's the way they want to be addressed. And I got two things on this. Number one, I hope her 18-year-old is reading this article and knowing that that's what their mom thinks of them. I, I want to start there. I hope that that is what they are reading the whole way through. Second of all, I also want to point out that Pearson Scheinberg, or sorry, both of the lawyers, it's not mentioned who did this, that they explicitly likened this to investors who are the real trophy generation, who want and legally have to have their needs catered to all the time by anything with a stock symbol. And yet, even when they control so much of the wealth of the country, even when they get to determine where every piece of legislation goes, even when they own damn near every politician, that's not enough. But for some reason, when investors are the trophy generation, when they're the babies who need to be appeased constantly, that's fine. But when workers want to be paid for doing a job that sucks well until their adult years when it's supposed to be a job that you do to save up money to go to school, not that that's a real thing anyway, you have to release the hounds on them. You have to say, oh, you want participation trophies. Oh, you want to be recognized for respect and, and respected as a worker. Yeah, of course you do. You're a human being. The article also quotes this anecdote from Pearson Scheinberg about her child, her 18-year-old child. A funny story, she told the audience. Her son, a high school senior, was trying to get out of writing a paper, but the only way to get out of it was to bring an outside speaker to talk to his class. He goes, Mom, I really think you would be cool, and I know you do this everywhere. It would be really cool if you come in, but you're a union buster, so it can't be you. You, you know how rare it is for me to say this. The kids are all right. <laughs> In very select circumstances. Okay, fine. 
I mean, can you imagine? I I don't know if this kid is going to uh, private school or public school, but like, can you imagine standing there and talking about how you avoid unions by coming up with meaningless DEI initiatives? And the other one, which was new to me, even environmental, social, and something um, campaigns, ESG, corporate governance, environmental, social, and corporate governance, uh, coming up with these in front of a if your kid is going to public school a union employee who has been subjected to those meaningless initiatives front and back over years. Cause I'm a non-union teacher and that's been a thing for us too, to prevent us from unionizing. It's I, I think the thing to take away from this article is that these people are scared. They see that things are changing and they do not like it. They are a little more nervous than maybe they have been in the past because their children don't think they're cool anymore. And <laughs> more pressingly, because their workers are unionizing. You know, we've seen and talked about Starbucks and Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and all of these restaurants and restaurant adjacent places that are, you know, finally unionizing in a way that the service industry hasn't really seen before in this country's history. And that terrifies them. Yeah, because when you unionize, you're telling your boss that you don't think they're cool anymore. <laughs> and that should be illegal. They're, they're trying. They're really trying. Do we have anything? <laughs> like, these people are scumbags, and it's very funny that they got roasted to their faces by possibly the most pro-worker official in the American government since, like, Francis Perkins. I mean, sometimes the segments just kind of write themselves. A, a big thank you to uh, Lever News and uh, should shout out the author here, Julia Rock, for this article, which is just a rich tapestry of, uh, you know, what goes on behind closed doors at events like this. Also, I think I speak for all of us when I say if Jenna Brusa wants to roast a uh, restaurant uh, uh, lobbyist some more, she can come on the podcast anytime she wants. That, that'd be great. Uh, and third of all, sorry, forgot until just this very moment. There is a video out there by the group we mentioned, Restaurant Opportunity Center United, which is a pro-worker group. I know it sounds like it's a lobbyist yeah. arm for the restaurant industry. There is a video out there called Hard to Stomach. Uh, that is basically a way to lay all of the things that we've been talking about in about two and a half minutes. It's done in a very silly cartoon style. It kind of whips. That might be that might be a quick one if somebody doesn't understand these issues. If you're bringing it up to them for this week, I, I think um, you know we're just full of news about the NRA. We could not possibly stomach another bite. We have. So, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. Check, please. <laughs> and this is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.